Hello there, I'm Toby. I'm going to watch a Doctor Who story nominated for me by a friend. They've also chosen their favourite things about that story, one per episode and one bonus, so that we watch it in a positive manner to remind ourselves that Doctor Who takes us to our happy times and places. You're listening to Happy Times and Places, a positive Doctor Who episode commentary with me, Toby Haydoke. So it's time for episode two, but first a quick reminder of who chose this story, what this story is, and why they chose it. Hello, my name's Chris Boyle, and I'm a full-time A-level law teacher and an incredibly part-time comedian and podcaster. The story that I've chosen is The Day of the Daleks, and the reason I've chosen that is because I do have problems uh, with The Third Doctor. Um, He should be my favourite. He's played by John Pertwee, he wears velvet jackets, he does incredibly complicated fight sequences whilst holding a glass of whiskey, and yet, more often than not, I find him a bit pompous and a bit superior, and it gets on my nerves. So I'm going to see if I can find the positives in a third Doctor story. So, night is drawing in. Ghosts are around. Let's uh, see if I can get through Day of the Daleks, episode two, without three gorillas storming in and holding me at gunpoint. Uh, In the hope that that doesn't happen, I'm going to press play in three, two, one, go. (laughs) I, I can already this early in, in the podcast slash video, I can see a theme developing where I press play and there's either a massive delay. There's not either. There is a massive delay in that time. It's because it didn't actually kick in because the the Blu-ray player is behind me because of plugs. It doesn't matter. Um, I love this title sequence. Louis Marx, of course, wrote this. What an odd career he has with Doctor Who. He turns up and does Planet of Giants and has an episode lopped off. Um, oh yes, and the 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 Dalek lady woman here, um, she actually fluffs. She says the same time time zone, but because it's at the end of the episode, she's uh, uh, she she gets the ignominy of fluffing twice. Um, and again, if it, if you're if you're like Gypsy Kemp's character, if you're a you know on the radio and you go, oh, so it's it's the same time time, you you can sort of you get away with that because it's you know. People stumble. Uh, in fact, people stumble in real life much more than they do in drama. But if you are a staccato alien wax lady, uh, <laughs> I think that's the one time you can't stumble to add a bit of naturalism to uh, proceedings. And of course, typically, that's when it happens, typically at the end of the episode. Um, uh, the, the shiny faces thing is, is, is interesting uh, because if it was, the, if it was just the, the sort of waxy space future ladies... Um, you could sort of go, well, they've undergone some sort of Dalekoid conversion, but uh, but the controller's quite waxy-faced as well. It's like they're cosplaying as Autons. Um, ah, and of course that's weird, isn't it? The uh, the 
the the playing of the the theme sting uh uh which is not something repeated before or since which means i'm i'm i sort of like it because i like it when they do different things look at the depth of that set the way that the dalek set is positioned obviously in the floor layout which means that because that's not going to be a whole set behind them but because of the angles it, it gives you a real sense of scale and the size of the doors which are quite small because they're dalek sized but depending on where you stand they give a different uh, a different sort of feel um is really interesting stuff because uh often doctor who uses height to suggest things that are imposing or scary or a sense of scale whereas here actually those small doors um well they do give a sense of scale depending on where they're shot but also there are times when the controllers uh sort of going through them and they seem very small and that makes them sort of slightly cramped and disorienting it's it's what they do with scale in this in the set design particularly in the future uh the set design and the direction working in synthesis i think is really interesting and then you throw in the vision mixing where there are fades and there are cuts from you know a shot of a person to that shot then being in a monitor i think is is some really good quality visuals now here's a thing um anna barry playing a gnat uh and, and she's done she's done bits of telly going back going back quite a long way but uh, she was the daughter of she's still still the daughter of well he's no longer with us uh, michael barry who was the head of drama uh, at the bbc in the 50s responsible for hiring among many rudolph cartier who directed the quatermass serials and uh, who i will frequently ask people about working with in my podcast as certain people have pointed out <laughs> jonathan morris um it's like uh Yes, there's like a drinking game. If you listen to my Who's Round podcast, what was it? Did you worked with Rudolf Cartier, of course. Um, so Rudolf Cartier, along with the words verisimilitude and beguiling, are ones that uh, 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 if there was a drinking game for the stuff that I whack out to you, uh, would, would probably be worth several tumblers full. So I will try and avoid them. But Anna Barry, yeah, is the, is the daughter of Michael Barry. She was in a film called a short film that won an oscar a couple of years ago this the silent child i watched it because it was about a, a deaf child and i have a a, a a stepson who is uh deaf and uh and anna barry turns up as the as the grandmother in the in the film which is lovely and yeah it won an oscar it's a beautiful thing i think it's called the silent child but um and i've only noticed this because i'm watching it on quite a big screen is that something she's mentioned in linda bellingham's autobiography um anna barry uh, as being a friend of linda bellingham and as being someone uh, who was in a car accident uh and i think i think lost an eye and had to, because her partner was a plastic surgeon um had sort of rebuilding and i could see i could see a, a little bit of a a, a a scar there so that's uh uh, and I'd, I'd sort of dismissed that and I wasn't going to mention it, but it is in the public record because it's in Linda Bellingham's book. So I hope it's not prurient of me to mention it. And I only mentioned it because I, I sort of saw the scar uh, uh, there. It's only very slight. She's a beautiful, striking woman. Um, and, uh, and and obviously plastic surgery and things were, were in its infancy then. But there we are. So there's an interesting thing that I hope is not 
separate. Whereas the 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 extra behind the brigadier's hair, this this the the hair that that lady has looks like it's been rebuilt by somebody with a lot of a, a lot of volume. Um, uh, uh, and I think Anna Berry, by the way, is excellent as Anat, and she is exactly as I'd imagined her from from the book. I remember seeing pictures of her and going, "That's that's pretty much what I thought she'd look like." Um, and she plays the part very well and very straight. Um, and and um, and I started off this episode talking about Louis Marx, who yes had had an episode of Planet of the Giants chopped after it had been recorded, which I think is never a good uh, sign. Uh, and then disappears from Doctor Who for ages, then comes back and does this, writes a story that isn't about the Daleks because this wasn't a Dalek story. This was a time traveller's from the future story you know the, the the averting uh the disaster from the future i love the lighting in this and the i love the lighting in this cellar scene um and um and, and so yeah he writes this story that doesn't have the daleks in and i believe i think in the scripts the ogrons aren't called ogrons i think they're called monster that's a bit that's a bit lazy. At least, come on. Yeah, yeah they've they got some monsters. And they were supposed to be dog-like, uh, which would have worked, I think. But um, uh, the, the, I think the, the, the ape-like, gorilla-like thing, gorilla-gorilla confusion aside, uh, and they look so good. Um, the costumes, you know, going with the mask look so good. Um, uh, <laughs> the doctor being locked in a wine cellar and then louis marx doesn't come back to doctor who for ages and then just two stories in quite close succession planet of evil and mask of mandragora in the tom baker era but it's an odd sort of he works for three different regimes um but isn't a sort of regular uh for, for, for any of them until and, and, and the end when he does those couple for for tom baker and i i alluded to before that there's a sort of there's Various people who, when Doc Two stuff is being prepared, are, are sort of give give their time to be a sort of network of helpful people. And uh, this was the first time I think I felt I'd been any use uh, because an old friend of mine, Mark Patterson at university, um, had had said when because you know, all my friends at uni knew I was a Doctor Who fan, said, "Oh, my my family know a guy who wrote Doctor Who, Louis Marx. Uh, I think Mark knows Louis Marx's daughter." So anyway, when they were preparing this DVD, I think they were struggling to find him. Uh, and Mark had befriended me on Facebook, and uh, I like I like the shooting of this scene. Um, Doctor and Joe are in the cellar. He said, conjuring images for people who are just listening to the podcast. I'll I'll get this right, I promise. And uh, and and Louis Marx. Uh, yes, they they tried Louis Marx's agent, and his agent said, "Oh, I think he's dead." And I hate that when people just go. Uh, uh, just assume, you know, assume some assume somebody's dead because they did something a long time ago. Especially if it's somebody's agent. Uh, I I think that's what happened. So I don't wish to be bad mouthing an agent in case that was misreported to me. But they 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 certainly didn't know where he was. And I think there was an assumption that he died. And I hadn't read he died. And I I felt that was news to me. So I would investigate. So I actually dropped Mark a line by the wonders of Facebook. And Mark, I haven't seen Mark in twenty years. But he'd always ring up when. I remember when Moth Saint, my Doc Two scarf, went to the West End. He just rang up and said, "Oh, you're doing thing. Well done. Yeah, lovely man." Um, 
And he uh, and I said, uh, and I sent him a message on Facebook saying, Are you still in touch with Louis Marx's family? And actually, he was, and they got a message to the daughter. And Louis Marx was poorly, I think, in living in Israel. Um, but what that meant was that the that the, the residuals for this, which would have gone to, I think, an agent who didn't know where he was, actually ended up. Uh, he was, you know, he was, he was reconnected with with monies that were due him. So I think because of that. Uh, I, I feel it might be the only useful thing I've done in the entire history of my association with Doctor Who is ensure that a writer towards the end of his life got a few residuals that he was due when uh, certain people didn't know where he was. Um, and of course he was in Israel because uh, and Mark, my friend, is 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 Jewish um, and and the and the freedom fighters are called Anat, Boaz and Shura, which uh, I believe um, Hebrew inspired or Hebrew names. Um, and of course, you know, that, that part of the world has, uh, you know, freedom fighting going on and, and sort of guerrilla warfare and various various other bits and bobs. So, you know, he was obviously, uh, uh, you know, trying to evoke some of the, the feel of that, if not, if not take on the, the politics of it. Um, uh yeah, so that's Jimmy Winston Ashura, who's just just died recently, which is a shame because I would have, uh, uh, he, as I say, he was on my list, and, and and Steve Broster said he was such a lovely guy, and Mark Ayres knew him as well. I think Mark Ayres went to buy Mark Ayres, the Doctor Who composer, went to buy some sound equipment off this guy, and it turns out it was because because he he did sell sound equipment later in life. That was his job, uh, and it's Jim Jim Winston who went. Oh yeah, I was in Doctor Who. Um, but Shura in the book is, I think, a younger, sort of naiver type of figure, a sort of young blonde guy, uh, to give a slightly different dynamic to the to the three of them. Um, but he leaps about, he's game, and I love this because uh, I think this is where he gets got by a, a an ogron, isn't it? Uh, and he's got oh, he's does he good? is he sort of said free to eagle? He's a bit he's slightly Cockney. Um, uh, but and this stuff on location looks uh, looks great, yeah. And he's this sort of there's a sort of tough sort of bit of spittle going on in that performance. But that's great. The oak that the the way the ogrons tower uh, uh, and and that costume, they're great. They're great. I love the ogrons. They're a superb addition to uh, the Doctor Who universe. That's a nice shot through a bit of the set. Um, you know, Doctor Who directors are... Uh, because because it's science fiction... Well, no, I think because television at that time, because you were shooting, you know, multi-camera, which you only really shoot a, a, a soap with now, and, and they assault, the soap would probably bulk at that sort of shooting. But uh, with something like Doctor Who, you, you need it. And what I like about Doctor Who of this period is that a, a director will dictate the visual style and indeed the pacing and everything and, and the music, you know, the sound of it, the director, we as Doctor Who fans, you know, can identify a Douglas Camfield story because it's probably shot a bit closer in and with, you know, beads of sweat on people's foreheads and slightly sort of chilling, uh, uh, you know, eth eth ethereal music and, and, and certainly, a, 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 you know, an aptitude for toughness and action uh, and, and, and convincingness in, in the rough and tumble. Whereas other, other directors uh, bring different things. Paul, Paul Bernard 
you know, is clearly very visually very ambitious. Ah, now I very much, again, this was another bit I'd remembered from the book where, of course, the soldiers ring. So instead of giving themselves away, the guerrillas go, okay, we need to get the prisoners up. But the doctor can't give anything away because somebody's holding a gun to him and Joe is under threat. So he does this thing, which is don't forget to tell the Marines. Now, as a kid, I didn't know what that meant. I'm still not in, entirely sure. Tell it to the Marines. It's something like, isn't it? It's a, it's an, it, it's an idiom. It's a, fr a phrase that that means um, uh, tell it to the Marines because the soldiers won't believe you. I think, I think if somebody said things like, you know, the moon is made of cheese. Yeah, yeah. Tell it to the Marines because the soldiers won't believe you. It's something like like that. So, but what I loved, but without knowing the the details of it. Um, was that the doctor had a thing that he could say that would mean there was a tacit understanding between him and the brigadier, which would tip the brigadier off, which is exciting because you know, all right, he's old prisoner, but the good guys are coming and the, and the bad guys, they're not the bad guys, but the, the other lot don't know. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I really liked the sort of the cleverness and the tricksiness of that without, without knowing all the exact details of it. Um, and I remember this bit where Joe gets pitched forward to the future and assuming that was an episode ending because it's a big, you know, it's a big development. And of course, the mystery of the, the gorilla disappearing early on. Um, but uh, but actually, it's not. It's just a it's just a it's 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 just another, you know, this, this, this progression for the story. Now, that's bold because there's a fade there, a cross fade as the controller spins his chair around and it's not entirely flush but it it works um uh, and you know you're used to everybody having to freeze for locked off shots but they go no we're going to have the controller spinning around and we're going to make that work she will be better off dead yeah 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 oh dear cuz she's in the future where everyone has a shiny face um but, and here we are, I can't choose him as my favourite thing, Aubrey Woods, and I haven't mentioned Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, although uh, he's the candy man. The candy man can. And I, and I knew he was uh, a musical performer because I remembered, I think Jason Donovan was on Wogan. Uh, and, and then they had a few of the cast of Jason is Technicolor Dreamcoat, I think, that Jason Donovan was doing at the West End, and Aubrey Woods was one of them. And that tipped me off that, oh, OK, he's an actor, but he's also a man of, of musical theatre. Um, and, and I think Barry Letts is quite hard on him on the commentary for this on the DVD, uh, which is unusual for Barry Letts because he's a very generous man, very generously minded. Um, but I, I, I think he felt that this performance was slightly out of kilter with everything else. But I think it. I think that's why it works. I think it needs to be. And I think if you've got a waxy face, you've got to, you know, you've got to differentiate yourself from the sort of down and dirty, yeah, sort of the, the, the gorillas who are the, the, the other guys who are a bit more sort of naturalistic and hurling themselves about. This sort of theatrical body language. I mean, he's got silver nails, for goodness sake. He can't, he can't exactly lounge about chewing the cud. 
so I know I do like Aubrey Woods very much. I think he's got great presence. Um, and I also think he's very good at suggesting that the controller kind of believes what he's saying. And I think that the journey that he goes on is really interesting. Uh, he's also, of course, Krantor in the Blake 7 episode Gambit, which if Barry Letts thinks he's a bit camp in this. <laughs> but again, it's, it's, a, that's a, it's a great episode of Blake 7 that uh, where everyone is dialed up to 11 on the campometer, <laughs> including uh, John Leeson and Bill Filer and... Oh, gosh, and Professor Cronotis and Amelia Ducat. It's a veritable feast of uh, Doctor Who types. Uh, having a whale of a time. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's very precise in his movements, isn't he? Um, have, we ha have I missed the bit? Was I chatting where he said, now you've told me the year. <laughs> which is very good because I'm not getting into the unit dating thing uh, oh oh is there a I think there's a documentary on this called the unit dating theory which I which I ended up um, narrating because I was around and cheap <laughs> this is great because it cuts doesn't it to the comes in and then it comes out and he's on the monitor screen love that that's glorious that's really fun although again it was wobbly in the last episode i didn't notice it was on strings sometimes clearing up the picture can make can spoil things i first watched this on a sort of grotty bootleg it will have looked a million dollars um albeit a million dollars like it was underwater and a hundred years old um and the, and, the, and the sort of framing of the Daleks is, is nice there. I just put my hand in my cup of tea, fact fans. <laughs> uh, the lighting in this cellar set is very nice. I'm presuming there's not much of it. and uh, But it's suitably atmospheric. Um, and where better? <laughs> if I was John Pertwee, I'd just free myself and just stay there for a bit and go, well, it's, it's a lovely couple of little numbers here. Oh, there's a... There's a cheeky Rioja and uh, and uh, and uh, and a very avant-garde avant-garde Merlot and uh, and a Malbec that's a right obtuse git. Um, oh, they look terrific, don't they? The Ogron was always played by Rick Lester. I remember in, in any picture from Day of the Daleks in Doctor Who magazine, it was always an Ogron, Rick Lester. You thought was, and, it was, and I'm sure when I saw the end credits, I was like, there's millions of Ogrons credited, but it's always Rick Lester. He's these, the fact it was in his contract. Uh, there's a bit of a delay when, yes, I love Scott Fredericks, but he's, he's, he's throwing himself on the floor after being hit by the door acting was like it was on a slight, slight, slightly delayed they showed this bit uh on the news when john pertwee died and i was furious because uh the nick hyam the bbc arts correspondent you think would have liked the arts and television and although television is counted at the arts which is why people patronize it um but if it's so easy to make television that millions of people watch and that uh, that lasts for generations uh you try it um 
I, I will come back to Nick Kayam uh, because this is quite important. Um, in the special edition, uh, Greedo shoots first, I think, does he? Um, I think it's such a shame. I, I, the Doctor for me is not somebody that um, disintegrates, even lumbering, um, slow-witted, uh, uh, ape-like factotums uh, of evil machine creatures because he, he could have got out of that without killing the thing. And, and seeing as this is the era where the Doctor does lots of lectures to people about, you know, peace and goodness and all of that sort of thing, and the Doctor generally doesn't take life, I know he often has his cake and eats it, and I know this is a fault with my own liberalism. And, I, I you know, I go, no, it's very important that the Doctor doesn't kill things, but he does have unit to blow things up if things do need blowing up. He does have unit to machine gun... Uh, yeah, I don't mind the Brigadier machine gunning the second Ogron because it stops the Doctor doing it. And and actually that's... And I'm aware that Doctor Who isn't necessarily the liberal show I see it as because I know people who see it as the complete opposite of the Doctor being somebody who identifies what is evil and fights against it. Uh, and 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 I'm aware my liberalism is is paradoxical and flawed and sometimes contradictory. But I have to see it I think we create the things we love in our own image, and 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 for me, as somebody that is, I'm not a violent person. I I uh, I'm a bit of an old liberal, um, but I also have to acknowledge, and I think genuine genuine liberals do, which a lot of liberals today don't, is acknowledge that uh, you know there are fundamental flaws or contradictions in our in our world view, uh, and I I have to you know I have to accept that I I don't like it when the doctor kills people. Although, uh, you know, in Doctor Who Adventures, the bad guys get killed all the time, even if it's once removed from the direct actions of the Doctor. But to see him just blatantly disintegrate some, something I, I find very uncomfortable and doesn't fit in with with uh, with my worldview of Doctor Who, which means that that bit probably won't be among the things that I choose of my favourite things. I ran out of time to talk about... Nick Hyam, the BBC arts correspondent, and John Pertwee's death on the news. So I will open with that thought. I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. I'm going to open with that thought at the beginning of episode three, because now what I have to do is I have to see if I have chosen a favourite thing that is the set is the favourite thing that um, uh, Chris has chosen, and I'm going to choose the Don't Tell It to the Marines, just because I, I thought it was the Doctor being clever. I thought it was it was a way that the audience were ahead of the 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 the, the, the baleful force that the, the the again they're not bad guys, but the people holding the Doctor prisoner kept, keeps him one step ahead of those other guys, which makes us as the audience complicit, and that's quite exciting. Uh, but also it's quite educational because it's obviously a thing, but it also works without you knowing what that thing is. Uh, and I'm sure I probably would have asked my mum or something like that. So, uh, you know, and if that adds to the sum total of, of knowledge about the way we express ourselves or idiomatic language or metaphors or whatever, I think that is all good. So uh, tell it to the Marines, uh, Chris Boyle, because the soldiers won't have chosen the same things as what you have or something my favorite part of episode two is a scene um, the doctor and joe are dragged into the cellar by the keyboard player from the small faces and his mates and uh, the light goes off and when the light is switched back on again the framing of the shot is beautiful 
and the sound design as the lines, what do we do now, tie them up, echo in the darkness, is excellently subtle. Superb little scene. Oh, well, I... That's the end, yeah. I think I talked all the way through that. Sorry about that. That's going to happen. Sometimes the best bits I'm going to... I'm going to have... Uh, chatted all the way through but because this is an audio podcast if I don't say anything you don't hear anything apart from you know the episode on in the background um so Chris and I did not choose the same thing but I like his choice uh, even though I didn't fully assimilate it myself anyway uh that is the end of episode two of Day of the Daleks as I say I'm tantalizing you with I'm um, probably going to have a rant about the way that John Pertwee's death was reported on the BBC News. Um, but for now, um, uh, that will involve a little bit of time travel. So as uh, we can't be doing that, I'm just going to say cheerio. Um, I, was, I was trying to do a clever tie-in with the time travel theme of the story and, 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 and I managed not to, so I've just spouted a little bit of nonsense. Hey, it's, at least it proves it's live. Um some sort of clever segue and some apt bon mot on which to end proceedings. Thank you very much. Goodbye. If you'd uh, like to hear a little bit more from me, uh, but you are too old to enrol on the A-level law course at the FE college that I teach at, but you are a fan of trivia that's liberally punctuated with bad language, um, then you can tune into my occasional podcast. Chris Boyle didn't know that. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, and I'm sure loads of other podcast providers as well. Um, thank you very much, and goodbye. Chris Boyle downplays his comedy in his intro to these episodes, which is typical of him, but also wrong. He's talented, very friendly, somewhat geeky, and very engaging. And uh, I know you'd be tuned in to what he's saying, so please check him out. He's also got a lovely singing voice and he's putting various videos out there on top of his podcasts. Since recording his biog for us, he has rebooted and relaunched his podcast, which now goes under the name Chris Boyle's Mild Life Crisis. Check it out, you'll have fun. I think you'll find... 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 Oh yes, and Tell It to the Marines is an English language idiom originally with reference to Britain's Royal Marines connoting that the person addressed is not to be believed. The full phrase is Tell It to the Marines because the sailors won't believe you. But only the first clause is usually given standing for the whole. So I'm glad we've cleared that up. I mean, I did actually have to read that because I can't remember anything these days. Ah. Yes, I think you'll find... I'm losing my marbles. Happy Times and Places was presented by me, Toby Haydock, and my special guest was Chris Boyle. Music for Happy Times and Places was specially composed by Dave Gates.
If you enjoy these commentaries and would like to support them, and indeed all my other podcasts, you can find details of those at www.tobyhaydoke.com, please do so at patreon.com forward slash tobyhaydoke, where you can be a subscriber, you get special goodies there, or if you just want to do a one-off payment every now and again when you're feeling flush or kindly disposed towards me, or you just think I might need a coffee, um, literal or metaphorical, uh, please go to Kofi ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Your support is always appreciated. Please also rate these podcasts and tell all your friends about them, unless you hate them, in which case go somewhere that you like instead. Thank you. Doctor Who is copyright the BBC, and no attempt has been made to infringe that copyright. I just like talking about Doctor Who. Don't forget to subscribe to the official Toby Haydoke YouTube channel.